0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of the blackest questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. Our guest for this episode has been one of the most constant voices in music journalism for the past 30 years. Trey was part of MTV News, he's written for Rolling Stone, The New York Times, Vibe, Ebony, the list goes on and on. And he's interviewed everyone from Tupac and Jay-Z to Lady Gaga. Thanks so much for coming out. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you? Trey is also an author, a professor, a podcaster, and cultural critic. But most importantly, he's my griot sibling. He's also got a new podcast called Being Black, The 80s. Tere, thank you so much for this special edition of The Blackest Questions. I'm thank so happy to see you. I'm
0: seeing. also somebody who's been to your party, so I've seen where this whole sort of Chrissy asking questions thing comes from.
1: Yes, and I've got to let my listeners know, this episode is jam-packed, so they better buckle up. Teray are you ready to play The Blackest Questions?
0: Yes, I am. I was born ready.
1: Okay, question number one. Wu-Tang Clan was formed in 1992 in Staten Island, New York City. The group is considered one of the most influential groups in hip-hop. Can you name every member of the Wu-Tang Clan?
0: The RZA, the Ghost Ghostface Killer, Method Man, Raekwon the Chef, Inspector Deck, U-God. Is that all of that? We got
1: two more to go, and you're missing my favorite.
0: Uh, no, I said Method Man. Um, he's not my favorite. He's not your favorite. Uh, oh. I said Raekwon. That's a clue. I <laughs> expected Who did I leave out?
1: I'm giving you a clue.
0: Ah. Oh, Dirty. Yes, full dirty. Oh, dirty Bastard. Dirty. One more.
1: Who joined the group in 1995?
0: Oh, the later, oh, the later one. Um, Jesus Lord, uh, I want to say Shaolin Monk or. Who was the other one? Oh my god, he never even really made it that big. Jesus Christ.
1: Cappadonna oh, is the last and final member. Yes. Um, and I hope our listeners understand, you know, if you know Old Dirty Bastards album, he has that whole thing where he does that that voice thing, yes. which I love. I think he's a genius. It's my favorite. Album. Yes. Okay, so the group's debut album, Enter the Wu Tang Thirty Six Chambers, which featured songs like Protect Your Neck and Cream, is considered one of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. X-Men. The album also got a five-mic rating from The Source, which at the time was the highest rating an album could receive. Wu-Tang tracks frequently made the Billboard charts, and the group was nominated for a Grammy back in 1998 for Best Rap Album. The collective picked up its name from a martial arts film shot in Hong Kong called Shaolan Wu-Tang. So, you actually wrote a review of Enter the Wu-Tang for Rolling Stone. Tell us about that.
0: Tell me about, tell you about that. I'll tell you about that. Wait, did I get the question or not? Because I got eight out of nine. Is that, is that, did I get it or not? I'm
1: going to let my producers decide whether or not you get okay. a black Well, fist. they
0: work with me. So that's one, right? So we <laughs> they're not going to say no to me. Yeah. You know, the Wu-Tang review was one of the things that I missed, right? Like the record sounded dirty. It sounded like under mixed, so it sounded like... Not, and the sound had been very crisp and clean, Dr. Dre. So they're totally changing the direction. I didn't get it right away. It took time for me, and I think for a lot of people, to really get into the Wu-Tang sound um, and to understand who they were. Because I'm like, there's a million guys here. The I mean, sound I'm a member crazy. of the Wu-Tang clan,
1: if, we, if you think about it. It's so many people.
0: <laughs> I mean... I, I didn't get it. I gave the, the review was more like medium rather than what I would give it now is probably a, probably a five because it is genius. And I think that they did subsequent things that were far more genius as far as Ghostface albums, uh, absolutely Raekwon albums, you know, some of the work method man did on and on, uh, Dex's work, you know, jizza, but uh, the first, the first one was extraordinary and I didn't recognize it right away.
1: Yeah, and that that gritty sound is something that, you know, we weren't accustomed to hearing. It sounded unfinished, unpolished. It sounded like someone's, you know, basement. But in retrospect, I think the album holds. Obviously, my favorite Wu-Tang Clan member is Old Dirty Bastard. I think that his solo album is just a work of art. It's a masterpiece. I can listen to it all the time. It
0: does hold because they weren't in line with the way things were supposed to sound then. So it doesn't sound dated because they weren't doing the contemporary things so they exist out of time as far as uh the timelessness of those records
1: now are there any other artists who you've changed your opinion about over the years where either you were you were really in love with them at the time and then you're like "Mm, this is whack in retrospect or you were a little lukewarm and now you realize okay they should be on someone's mount rushmore
0: i'm not you know that's interesting i'm not really sure i'm thinking of nobody's coming to mind right now where I downgraded them, like right? I think once you understand somebody and you connect with them as musician and fan um, or critic, you know, that, like that's going to stay, right? Like it may end up that was dated, but I'm not going to. Ten years later, that album was actually whack, but I loved it. Like, but somebody who I didn't get, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I can. I'm not sure. I can say. I'm
1: well, not sure me, what I would think of that. I gotta say, like every outcast album that's ever come out the first few listens I'm like I don't get it it's, it's sort of I have to like earn the listening pleasure of an outcast album like the first time I heard atLs I was like what in the deuce is this nonsense and then I think you know what over time deuce? like you know after a few listens I'm like this is brilliant. Same with Aquemini. I. mean, all of their albums for me, I sort of have to like sit with them for a short spell before I, mean, I can really understand it, I and think truly some, appreciate them.
0: Some artists, some albums, we need multiple listens to understand and, and sort of just put everything into order in our mind. And some, you know, hit you right away. Sometimes the more profound musical relationship will come from the thing that you didn't first understand Right. And that you had to just put in a little bit of time. Look, the first time I put on a Nina Simone song for myself, I was 22. I heard the sound of her voice. It it freaked me out. I was not emotionally prepared as a 22 year old to deal with Nina Simone. And I turned it off. Right. And I came back to it uh, a year later and was like, okay, now I can better appreciate, understand and deal with this. Ah! Ah! It's funny because the first time I listened to De La Soul's album, Three Feet High and Rising, their first album, I put it in, I had a little car, I put it in the car, and like the first couple songs I was like, okay, all right, whatever, whatever, and then they got to the song about frogs, where <laughs> the frogs were rapping back and forth to each other, and I was like, oh, this is whack, and I <laughs> threw it in the back, and then like a couple months later, Potholes in My Lawn came out, and I was like, yo, that record's incredible. I, I got let me give this another chance. Went in the back, dug it out. And then I was like, oh, my God. And then I became a huge, gigantic De La Soul fan. Potholes in my, life. Potholes in
1: my life. Everybody's saying what to do when sucker lunatics start digging and
0: chewing. But, you know, at first they threw I was I was not ready. It's not them. It's whether or it's, not we are ready. Exactly.
1: Exactly. OK, this record company was based in Englewood, New Jersey and is credited with being the first label to release rap music. What is the name of this label? Sugar Hill. Okay, so Sugar Hill Records. The recording studio was first opened in the 1960s by married couples Sylvia and Joe Robinson and was originally called All Platinum, but changed its name to Sugar Hill Records in 1979 when it began focusing on rap music. Soon after, the label released Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, and the song became rap music's first top 40 hit. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. Grandmaster Flash and Furious 5, Crash Crew, and Treacherous 3 were just some of the acts that recorded with Sugar Hill. The label was eventually sold in 1986. And in 2002, the Sugar Hill building burned down, taking with it Master Tape's of hit songs like The Message and Rapper's Delight. So do you remember where you were the first time you heard Rapper's Delight?
0: Oh, absolutely. I was in my mom's car. It came on the radio. It it, it was so pop that it made it on, because my mom was not into black urban contemporary radio. She was a mom, right? But she listened to um, a station that had a, a softer So I play Lionel Richie and Paul Simon and Wings, right? Paul McCartney's group, Um, lighter stuff, right? But Rapper's Delight had a light feel to it that it could pop up on pop radio. I heard it on the radio in my mom's car, and I was immediately like, what is that? And we had heard songs before where there was a little rap part. Right, Dizzy Gillespie, Jimi Hendrix, other people gave you a short rap part, maybe a a four, maybe a six. Right, not but this was like, yo, they're still rap, they're rap, they're They're still still going, going. they're still going, they're still like, this is amazing. The form of rapping blew me away the first time I heard it.
1: Um.
0: It's funny in relation to your previous question because at the time I thought Rapper's Delight was amazing, right? Now, the innovations that quickly came thereafter was like, oh, that song is bubblegum. We're going much deeper because I also remember uh, being out in the park with my dad and one of his grown friends saying to me, have you heard the message? And I was like, no, I know nothing about this song. And so I had to go find it and played it and was like, Oh my god, this song is mind-blowing. Like if this is what rap is and can be, because we call it rap then, like I'm I'm sold. So don't
1: push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> and when did you know that it was that sort of hip-hop was gonna be a staying force?
0: I never looked at it that way. Of, I never thought about, will it be a staying force? I remember my parents saying it wouldn't be. And then when Quincy Jones came out with Back on the Block, where he worked with Big Daddy Kane and a lot of other contemporary rappers, then the, the older folks were like, Oh, this is a real thing and not a fad. We should have got our freedom much sooner. You never seen a black man on the of- But it never occurred to me that it wouldn't be that it was a fad, that it would just go away. Like there was a culture that was clear to us in the early eighties, even though it was small. Um but it seemed very Powerful, and you know, you you just wanted to be a part of it. I mean, I remember buying LL Cool J's Radio just on the strength of the way the cover looked.
1: I didn't know any of the songs, but I'm like, boombox, right? That's 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 all. That's all it is. So wait, so this is a perfect time to talk about your new podcast, though. Being Black the '80s, because all the episodes dropped at once, and it's a docu-style podcast. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I've been wanting to do something like this for a long
0: time, and I'm really thrilled that the Grio gave me this chance. Um, we're talking about black political issues in the 80s, but also mixing in the lens of the songs of the 80s that speak to those issues. So you get a song like N.W.A.'s Dope Man, and you could talk about uh, the crack epidemic, or a song like Public Enemy's uh, Black Steel in the Hour Chaos, um, and you could talk about mass incarceration. All
1: the situations unreal, I got a raw deal.
0: So we talk about the songs and we talk about the issues that they bring up. Uh, one of the episodes goes into de la Souls My brother's a basshead. bro And this is what this is probably the greatest song of that saying. This is how crack affected my family, but I am not a user, right? Because some people are users and talking about what it feels like for them to use. But this is like, Having a crackhead brother, and it's a true story, hurt me and my family. So we have producer Prince Paul talking about the making of the record. I remember him just really being bothered, and this was, I mean, in in recording the record and really expressing a lot of emotion. Like it's this wasn't just you know the song sounds kind of lighthearted and you might poke a little fun here and there as it sounds, but it was something that bothered him and then you're going into the feeling of using crack and the impact of crack and so it's it's very digressive and discursive and there's a lot of sound design and you can really sort of trace this mental journey through from one song through these social issues to sort of political history for black people in the eighties to the destination of another song that it's very, it's very interesting. And it sort of moves in all sorts of different ways that podcasts don't usually move. So I'm really excited about this.
1: I I'm super excited about it because there's so many issues that I think that you tackle not just from the traditional head on, but you change this prism and you have us look at it from a different angle. You know, there's so many rap albums, obviously, that talk about selling drugs, but I love this this new conversation that you're starting. Shout out to Byron Allen and all the team at the Grio um for Good. making sure my Grio sibling has an amazing new podcast called Being Black the 80s. So be sure to check it out wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so you're doing well. You ready for question number three? I've,
0: yes, I'm perfect so far, so it's, let's keep going. You know what?
1: No competition, right? Um, okay, question number three. This next question is the two-parter, so here's the first part. Who is the best-selling female rapper of all time?
0: Um, Lauren.
1: No, the answer is Missy. Nicki Minaj. So since arriving on the music scene in 2010, Nicki Minaj has sold more than 100 million records. She grew up in Jamaica, Queens in New York City and released several mixtapes between 2007 and 2009 before her debut album, Pink Friday. And earlier this year, she beat out Missy Elliott, my absolute favorite, for the longest consecutive run on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Nicki has now had a single on the chart for 14 consecutive years. Missy's record was lucky number 13 years. And so while we're talking about Billboard, let's chat about their controversial list that ranked the top rappers of all time. Nikki was the only female who made the top 10. That I will retire with the ring and I will retire with the crown. Yes. She was given the number 10 spot. Jay Z took the top spot, which I highly disagree with, followed by Kendrick Lamar, Nas, Tupac, and Eminem. Rounding out the top five. So, you know, I had preguntas, preguntas, preguntas. So, do you think Nikki was in the right spot on the list? And were there any other women missing from that top ten list that you would have liked to see?
0: I'll answer the first part of the question. I'm not answering the second part of the question. Well, I, no, Nikki's way too high. She's not top ten. That's ridiculous. That, that It's it's completely ridiculous. No, she's not top ten. She's She can flow, but there's not anywhere near enough substance in the rhymes for her to be top ten, that's a joke. Um Lauren I could make an argument for Lauren being top ten. I I mean I, I could see that. Um but I mean some purists would say there's not there's not necessarily enough
1: yeah where's the sh- material the body work.
0: to be top ten as opposed to you know people who are ranked higher. Um I mean you know look what about Queen Latifah? is that a joke i mean like no that's are not you, a you joke she's top like not are you, is that a joke I mean, that's a joke right Queen that's, not Lathif, a seri- are you, that's not a serious top will 10 come you said top 10 you. you said top 10 you did okay, not all right, say all right all right, is all right. She great she's a great MC. you said right. top right. 10 i didn't top right. say top 10, no that's a yes, joke okay. that's that's okay. a joke okay i mean you know look i let's let's pause here to say that misogyny in many forms that exists throughout the music industry in all genres has give has limited the impact that a lot of women could have Mm -hmm. right to say nothing of misogyny throughout society but just i know of female artists who are saying you know i'm in my sessions that i'm paying for and men are talking down to me Mm -hmm. about my music Mm -hmm. right and and some of that grinds women to to say nothing of what Kesha and other women have been through. Right. Like Harvey Weinstein type situations. Right. right? Absolutely. So I I am, you know, to say nothing of, you know, the, the overt masculinity of hip hop, when a lot of people are like, I'm not even going to take a woman rapper seriously. Right. No matter how well. she. So, you know, I, I think that that misogyny has been a huge barrier. Right. so, that so that you know and and but that's been an issue in 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 many genres. So I don't think that's necessarily specific to hip hop. And um, I know that
1: you're not a big fan of ranking artists based on album sales or streaming numbers. No, so tell no, our no. audience a little bit more about that. Well,
0: we don't. We should not. We we here's the problem with talking about sales. Right, is that that gives too many votes to white people. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying black people don't buy or stream music, but there is it's
1: a disproportion. there there is the data
0: there is yes there is a let's say finite number there's a certain number of people who are serious hip-hop fans who will buy something let's say it's two three million right like that's pretty much the the size that a big truly hip-hop album can get to well when you get to let's say drake to name a name you get six seven eight million that's four, five, six million white people who are not, and this is, the race is not really the issue, but they are pop fans. They are not true hip-hop fans who are buying that, who are saying, I love Taylor Swift, I love... And
1: I like Drake. sing-songy music. Like, and that's... I like
0: Drake. There's nothing wrong with that, but if we're talking about the greatest MCs of all time, adding in sales means people who aren't hip-hop fans are getting too large of a vote. Because we only use sales to talk about the fo- guys like Drake, right, who are doing six, seven, eight million, right? It, it it's not going to differentiate somebody who's doing gold from double platinum, right? You're not going to say the double platinum guy is better than the gold guy,
1: like not necessarily. No, not necessarily. Okay, right. so let's so, go. Let's go to the second part of the question, right? I told you this was two parter So here's the second part. Do you know the best selling album by a female hip hop artist? Why are you doing this? Well, I want to see how misogynistic album... you are. Album.
0: <laughs> by a female art let's see um i mean like i mean logically you would guess it's uh something from nikki i could not name her, her albums um yeah but miseducation did like 10 million stop or there you're like correct that. okay yeah <laughs> it's the
1: miseducation love lauren hill okay. the album has sold over 20 million copies and was certified diamond in 2021, making Lauren Hill the first female rapper to achieve the milestone. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill is her only studio album. She does also have the live album, and she's released more than 20 singles. Lauren Hill, of course, is part of the group of Fugees, which is often called one of the most influential groups of the 1990s. So. Would you agree that they are one of the most influential groups of the 1990s? Are the Fugees one
0: of the most influential? I mean, I guess I mean, I I, I, I guess they're very influential. I mean, like there was definitely there was a period when there was a lot of energy around how can we mix the R&B sound and the hip hop sound. Right. And that's mary j blige that's the whole sort of puffy idea of things that expanded way beyond them and there was whole and so the fugees are giving you that um you know i mean i would love for the music to for hip-hop to have more of a diaspora sound more of the caribbean sound that wyclef put in i mean like nobody sings like lauren Uh, I, I was struggling to think of somebody who brings the intellectual, political, spiritual, you know, and, you know, the great music like Lauren does. I mean, Jay Electronica in that vibe. But I mean, like, you know, to me, when you say influential, I want to think about who are the people who came after that person? It doesn't mean they're big. It means, who right? Like we were talking about Tina Turner is Beyonce's cultural mother. And as soon as you say that, you're like, oh, my God look at tina and the energy the flashy the blonde and look at beyonce and that takes nothing away from beyonce i love beyonce but like this is very much you know just as when somebody pointed out like no prince is not from jimi hendrix james brown uh it's sly stone he's from little richard like oh my god he's little richard's son he's doing an impression of little richard half the time it's amazing. So do I see other groups that tried or succeeded at doing what? the I'm not sure I see that. But that does not mean the Fujis are one of the most important groups of their era.
1: Right. Okay. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. I have so many thoughts on that, but we can't get into it. I have thoughts on a 2 versus three-person group. But we're going to take a commercial break. Don't have me on your podcast and we'll discuss the Fujis at a later date. We'll be right back. I'm talking to Ray host of a new podcast called being black the 80s we'll be right back
0: the 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley de la soul and public enemy
1: I'm a black man and I can never be a veteran
0: being black the 80s is a podcast docu series hosted by me Torrey, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade
1: yeah, I have
0: a decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets, but lost their humanity. You couldn't be like those no soft, smiling, happy-go-lucky drug deal You had to suppress that. It was a time when disco was part of gay liberation. It provided the information to counter narratives that were given to gay people by the straight world. This is the funkiest history class you'll ever take. Join me, Torre, for Being Black the 80s on the Grio Black Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Okay, we're back. You're listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm with my Grio sibling, to Ray, we're talking about his new podcast, Being Black, the 80s. Um, okay. Three question points. Number... Three questions, three points. No, I'm winning. Except for that last question. I don't know. I'll have my producers run the numbers. Listen, no, no, we've I, had got, people... I,
0: I, I got the second part of the question. So I got
1: three points. You got the, Lauren, you got the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Oh, you did. You sure yeah, did. You yeah. sure did. Okay, I'll uh, give you that. We've had people who've had zero out of five and they had a blast and, you know, they, no, they promised to come back. Okay, five, so, but I do, do. but I do, I want to I wanna get five out of five. You, you want your credit. All right, yeah, well, let's yeah. see how you do with number four. Because as we know, as our listeners know, the, the questions get progressively more difficult. I like that we're getting more progressive as we go yeah. on. I like <laughs> That's that. That's true. Listen, you've been in the game for a minute. I want to know your thoughts and opinions on these things. Okay, this hip-hop group was based in Los Angeles and released only one album in 1988. The group consisted of three brothers, one who went on to join Cypress Hill. What is the name of this group? Are we allowed to curse? We try not to. Just get out. Know.
0: I really did you don't not like, me. That's like okay. I did not like LA rap at that time. hmm And I think that there were definitely New Yorkers who were like, we don't we so we're not paying attention, especially right. if you're not getting big like Cyprus, we're really not paying attention because we're New York. We look down on the West Coast.
1: I got it. Hey, listen, the podcast only been so long, boo. I gotta go. You ready? Here's the answer: seven eight three. I don't so, even
0: know if that's a fair question. DJ Mugs, pre Hill days. Oh, uh, D- DJ Mugs
1: is Hill days.
0: Oh my God, that's not even a fair question.
1: S C A double Last name is Bolden, so we use the B. Sean Bolden and Brett Bolden made up the hip hop trio that released just one album entitled "Coolin' in Cali." They were dubbed a West Coast group, yet the brothers were from New York City. The album included tracks you may know, like Drums of Steel and Hit em Again. Nobody knows these tracks, Chrissy. Did the album go wood? Oh, my God. Who would even know this? It's a good lead-in to your podcast questions on New York and L.A. and various influences. So... What other hip-hop groups are out there that might not be considered some of the greats, but you think still have catalogs that are worth a listen and we should tell our audience about them?
0: Well, I mean, you know, Jay Electronica is probably a name that comes to mind right away who I think is vastly underrated in terms of a lot of hip-hop heads know him and love him, um, but say, oh, he hasn't produced enough music to... And I think people who are not like digging in the crates type hip hop heads may not have uh dug into him. And Signal me over. You with the I see you from the Catholic church This is one of the extraordinary MCs of the modern era, a guy who talks about religion and spirituality, who's extremely deep in the way he approaches uh music and i I love his music i loved his albums he and i before his uh album which we were all waiting for for like seven or ten years or something um i had more of his music in my itunes than a lot of rappers who had albums out so i was like he's produced a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. um who else God, Chrissy, I mean, well, you know, but Go ahead.
1: let's shift gears for a second because I want to talk about the West Coast sound of the 90s for a moment. So, we know that Death Row Records was founded in 1991 in Los Angeles and they released several iconic hip hop albums. I remember blasting the tapes in my 1981 diesel car in high school. Um, and they were part of a lot of significant pop culture moments. You know, we remember the Sorcerer Wars with Suge Knight, for example, obviously the beef between Biggie and Tupac. Did you ever interview Suge Knight or anybody from the Death Row camp and spend a little time in Los Angeles? Oh,
0: look who does not pay attention to my work! Did I, I ever hey, interview there. Suge Knight? Are you kidding? I know this. Next, I'm he's going to ask if I ever interviewed R. Kelly. I'm, yes, I interviewed yes, I'm Suge Knight. For the audience. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't know. You didn't know. <laughs> Because this is a very traumatic story that I'm going to have even to go longer. talk to. I have an emergency call with my therapist just to bring this story up out of the vault. It's so painful, but I'll we, do it for I you. I know this.
1: I need to make sure our audience knows. Do yes, it for tell you, us about Prissy. your iconic
0: interview. So I was doing a story for The New Yorker on a record executive from the 70s named Dick Griffey, who in some ways was like Shug before Shug. He was a He was huge. He was a real gangster, and he was determined to make money in the music business. He had mentored Suge. So when I'm hanging out with Dick for, you know, many days, I kept saying, like, let's go see Suge. Because he was suing Suge. Uh, oh, because he said that he owned 5% of death row from having given him seed money from the at the beginning. So fi- he's like, no, no, no. And then finally he sets it up. We go over to see Suge. It's like midnight or something. Sh- I say I want to talk to Suge. And I'm trying to do the story quick. Uh, I would say I, I want to talk to Suge alone. I'm interviewing him. I've been, Dick Leaves. I don't know where he is. I'm in Suge's office at death row at midnight. It's as ominous as you could imagine. And he's and I'm interviewing him, asking basic questions about Dick Griffey. And then finally, I'm like, so what's up with the lawsuit? And he's like, what are you talking about? And I pressed the question because that's what you're supposed to do. Although, if you are sitting in the enemy's lair, you perhaps should not do that. Um, he, uh, long story short, he kind of grabbed me around the shoulders and kind of pulled me around the room a little bit. He kind of felt like a rag doll. There was a period of time where I was trapped in the room and there was a clearly a young gangbanger who looked like Five minutes out of county, or five minutes off the street, who was just standing there, who he's like, Suge was like talking to him. And I'm like, this guy's gonna rush me and I don't know what I'm gonna do. Right. And I, if I break only one bone tonight, then I'm ahead of the game. um And then finally, uh we kind of wrapped that up partly with Suge showing me this incredible, he remembered our 45 minute interview in detail, like, everything that I asked and everything that he said. He repeated our 45-minute conversation because we were, like, going to redo the interview, but now I'm too scared to talk, and he just redid the interview all by himself. And then he's like, all right, you got your interview. Get out of here. And I, like, ran out. It was horrible. Uh, it's very scary. But it's actually going to be part of another show that we're doing for the Grio called Star Stories that's going to come out uh later. later oh, this year. I absolutely love it. I'm very traumatized now, Chrissy.
1: I'm very <laughs> traumatized. Can somebody bring me and some tea? And that's what we like I'm to do out. here on The Blackest Questions. Where, no, I can't. I can't Bring people uh, out. Uh, but really quickly, before we go on to question number five, do you think that some of the violence that we're experiencing in hip-hop and in the lyrics and the music and the rhetoric is just a part of hip-hop culture that's here to stay? Or do you think that there could be a cultural shift because there's so much other stuff going on that we might see... Sort of a return back to, I mean, uh, partly conscious rappers. You
0: partly um, fall back on like you seen Bay talking about hip hop is, um, you know, an avatar for the community. It is a representative of the community. It's not like things are happening that are not tied to what's going on in the community. There is uh, death and Mm -hmm. an over prevalence of guns uh, and drugs and drugs in our community. Yeah, in our community. And so you see that in hip hop. Now, a lot we are seeing gun deaths in hip-hop, but we're also seeing natural deaths in hip-hop uh, you know so I mean some folks perhaps are not able to take care of themselves or maybe uh, unwilling to see the doctor or have hereditary health problems, all these sort of medical racism issues that we have heard about that that you know don't escape just because you escape to another class. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on, but I don't think that it is divorced from uh, what's going on in the community. And like these are issues that we are dealing with in the community at large. I don't think that there's a specific problem that is endemic to hip hop that like we you know, like that. I don't subscribe to that notion.
1: All right. Well, good to know. I can't wait to hear more about uh, your thoughts on this on your new show, Being Black, the 80s. Okay, question number five. Are you ready to rock and roll?
0: Uh, Is that the question?
1: Yes. (laughs) So this group has been described as Southern Rap Pioneers, and they had a highly successful album release in 1989. But radio stations and MTV refused to play any of the songs because of their, quote-unquote, violent lyrics. What is the name of this group?
0: Wait, wait, because of the violent lyrics or because of the sexual lyrics? Violent lyrics. Oh, that would be the Ghetto Boys.
1: You are correct. The Ghetto Boys were a trio from Houston, Texas that eventually consisted of Scarface, Bushwick Bill, my favorite, and Willie D. The group started out with completely different members and went through a couple of switch-ups before they became the trio that stayed together for decades. The group's hits, Mind Playing Tricks On Me, and Damn It Feels Good To Be A Gangster, are hip-hop classic. Damn it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster-ass nigga knows the play. So, who do you think... You know I like hot takes on this show, and you know I like putting you in the hot seat. Who do you think are some of the most influential rappers or rap groups from the South?
0: Oh, see, that's funny, because you brought up Ghetto Boys. I thought you were going to put me on the hot seat, by saying, say, can you talk about disabled rappers? I'm like, no, I cannot. Bush McBill is the only one I could think of. Um, well, Fetty Wap had one eye, but I don't know if that counts. Um, the question is about Southern MCs. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we talked to, we touched on Andre 3000. I think, you know, who's one of the greats, definitely a top 10 all time. Um, I think Lil Wayne is one of the top 10 MCs of all time. His talent is extraordinary. The way that he does, I mean, the flow is ridiculous. Um, But
1: his use of the English language and the way he thinks about society and his lens, I'm just, it's like a kaleidoscope and I'm totally into it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way that he uses metaphor... There's a horrific trend that I hate where people do a sort of... I almost look at it like a perpendicular hom- homonym relationship. I'm going to hang your career up like a flat screen. I'm like, that. Uh, no. Like I thought that, that the, the
1: Rick Ross style r- of rapping, well, even though girl, he likes Nikki, to rhyme words with rant, With your words.
0: Girl, Nikki loves that, and He's I like, hate that I'm the way boss, of doing it. Because
1: I'm a boss. And it's like... Mm. You're running boss with boss. But, Thank you.
0: But Wayne does metaphors brilliantly.
1: You know what I would love, Trey? Yeah. I would love a sit-down conversation between Langston Hughes and Little Wayne. Okay. okay. And the use mm-hmm. of poetry and metaphor and simile and puns. And I just think that the two of them would have had one of the most interesting conversations about expression of black life sure. vis-a-vis poetry. Sure. No, that's and it. it. Biggie um, up there too with
0: me, but that's gonna be T I's
1: extraordinary. Oh, I, know, Rick Ross have, is interesting. I wouldn't have had T I on my list at all. Oh,
0: no no, Ti I's one of the great rappers from the really? South, I think, without a doubt. But he the Rick Ross, I want to throw in he's fine as a rapper. This is not a great flow or a great writer, but he is the greatest music slash beat. Picker. I think I'm big meat. Huh? Larry Uber.
1: whipping Hallelujah Yeah I enjoy his bangers In I the do.
0: game right and I was been like yo if we made Rick Ross an A&R and let him pick beats for somebody else you know for example Nas who is the greatest MC who doesn't pick great beats quite <laughs> often but he <laughs> told me he does that on purpose because he wants to challenge himself because he like, if um, I picked the illest beat, it would be too easy. So well, he wants to go in a harder road. Does he
1: want us to also focus in on his voice because we're not just absorbed by the beat? He didn't say that, but I mean, I'm sure that becomes part of it. But it's right. just, he, he just said it's a harder challenge.
0: Yeah, when you can the hide behind a not... great beat. I mean, we see yeah. it all the time, Jay-Z. Yeah.
1: Um, so I'm also going to say, I didn't hear you explicitly say Big Boy. You said Outcast, but is he up there for you? Big Boy's a
0: great MC. I think Andre is just deeper and just more philosophical and a little smarter, but I think Big Boy is great. Um uh CeeLo is an extraordinary MC. Um, who else do I love from the South? I mean, Jay Electronica's from this is from the South, uh, is from New Orleans. Um who else? I mean,
1: Missy's from the South. Would you put her in that category? Well, is Virginia the South? Uh yeah. Okay. I'm I mean, I like, in a 17 state South. If you had U.S. chattel slavery, you are the South. If
0: Virginia is the South, then sure. Yes. Are you, you doing also like get... 3
1: 6 Mafia? Are they anywhere for you? What? I'm asking questions that the listeners might want to know. Don't I don't think me. the listeners want to know about what. 3 6? What? I thought we are doing I'm serious, trying to be th- we're doing
0: serious stuff. Now as you're as jokes. Now you're all jokes like, yeah. again. There's somebody I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. Texas,
1: Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. Oh, no. You know, you know, the big
0: I think the you know, Atlanta is is so hot in hip hop and in music in general. Um, but I do find it interesting that that DC is the only city where there's a ton of black people and they don't have a significant hip hop uh Community as far as artists, well, because they're so
1: busy into their pots and pans music. Yes, I I, said it, DC listeners. Go 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 sounds like pots and pans. And listen, I'm I'm a Baltimore club music aficionado. That is my that's my base. I think it's a thousand times better than go go music. I know we're gonna get lots of hate mail. I'm sorry, DC, but your music sounds like pots and pans from the kitchen and someone yelling.
0: You know, I just think that. There's there's a DC mindset that could be really interesting on records, and we haven't had that. And it's kind of like, like going to
1: a restaurant, and seeing an amazing salad meal, whatever, and then when you get it, it's like, huh, all right, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, it's fine. we got to move on because before we get to Black Lightning, and before I have to change my address with all the DC people coming to New York trying to jump me, uh, we got to chat about a couple more things because because you've just had such personal moments with so many icons, I want to just pick your brain really briefly, okay? So first, if you had to choose, give us your top three interviews you've ever done.
0: That's so hard. I've been blessed to be part of a lot of amazing situations when Jay-Z and Nas reunited after their beef. They talked to Sway for MTV and then they drove up the street and they came to BET and talked to me. And, we, and that was an extraordinary moment. You think you won? I'm always thinking I'm winning. I'm one. You think you won? Of course. I mean, I suppose that's how how it is. is. Um, I did an an amazing hour and a half with Zadie Smith on my podcast, Tore Show, where it, it was just an amazing conversation about writing and hopefully, and I think, you know, in 20, 30 years when there's like Zadie Smith studies at Harvard or Yale or whatever, like they'll look at this as like here's an important source of information about what she was thinking about as a writer. Um, You know, I mean, I think about, you know, the first time I had uh, Jay-Z on at Fuse, and I had already done five or six Jay-Z interviews from Rolling Stone and MTV and other things. There was one interview that really wasn't an interview, right? Because you can get learn a lot by not asking questions, where we played poker all night in the Trump uh, penthouse in the up in Columbus Circle. So we're, you know, we're just together and I'm like learning about him and vibing him and like seeing like who he really is. No questions asked that night. But like, you know, you learn more than you could have asking a question. Right. That was for the cover of Rolling Stone. So we already had this deep relationship. So he comes to fuse. He's supposed to talk to me for 10 minutes. We get vibing and we go for 40 minutes and they make it a show. And then every artist in the game wants the same treatment. And that's part of how we got to me and Lady Gaga, who I talked to twice. Um, Those were extraordinary conversations. Um, I mean, you know, there's been a lot. uh, One thing I would say to folks who want to sit in the chair, interview other people, when you're talking to somebody, make them feel heard. Like when they talk to me, they will feel more heard in that moment than they will all day. And that sense of feeling super heard will make people want to share their deepest secrets with you. Gotcha.
1: Um, okay, so...
0: See, and she was just waiting to talk.
1: No, you know what? I'm she was just waiting for her to talk. That is, like...
0: That's not what you do. You make them feel like I'm listening to you and I'm not like I'm waiting for my turn I'm to talk. I'm also
1: low-key talking to my producer about something else because you talk too much. Um <laughs> <laughs> So it's like yes, I am listening to you. You know I'm not a fan of Jay Z. You know that. Um. So I like don't thanks know for that. these Jay And stories. that sounds
0: crazy because no, i not. not love hip hop. Do you also kick puppies? Do you I put the toilet paper on puppies. the backside side
1: instead of on the front um, side? I do love hip hop. I just I don't like him for a host of reasons. And you know I look at Barclays every time and I like curse his name every time I walk past it. He um, doesn't own the Barclays. No, he doesn't. But he sold out Brooklyn for his like little 0.21 percent. Nickels that he got. I mean, but anywho, you know, look,
0: look. We can have a very reasonable and real can. critique of Jay Z in his political era of life, yeah. right? And and the NFL stuff bothers me immensely. I mean, oh. he basically became the counterbalance to Kaepernick and basically yeah. told not told rich- he did not tell Kaepernick to shut up. No, he but told rich white people you don't it's need like, oh no, we're
1: we're beyond that. Like, I can settle. No, you know, no, these he like placate the negroes.
0: He told us we are beyond that, yeah, right? Well, Which made us was kind of stand down. We thought mm-hmm. Jay Z's on the case.
1: He He's was never definitely on the case. He's a capitalist, and that's fine. You can absolutely a but like absolutely, you know, but, don't if, try and we're drag the about, black community with this.
0: But we're talking about MCs. We're talking mm-hmm. about what he did on records and on stages, right? This is part of my issue with people putting Tupac. In the top five, which is insane, because you're only thinking about all the stuff he did outside of the studio. If you just listen to the music, he can't be top five. It's impossible.
1: This brings me to a much larger conversation, which we unfortunately don't have time to do today on the podcast. But I do want to actually get into this, because there is this tension that black people have between who you are as the entertainer and who you are in real life. Right. We we have this debate about the Cosby show. Do we still watch it? Do we watch a different world? Sammy Davis Jr., sure. And yes, I mean, James Brown, Jim Brown, like the list goes on and on. So while we're talking about it, what about your 2008 interview with R. Kelly?
0: When you say teenage, how are we talking? Girls who are teenagers.
1: But you know, 15 years later, R. Kelly's now a convicted felon. He's likely never going to get out of prison. We've heard these rumblings, you know, I went to high school in Illinois. I heard the rumblings all through high school. You were the first person in the media to put out a copy of R. Kelly and Aaliyah's marriage certificate when she was 15 and he was Um, Why do you think it took so long for the legal system to catch up with what a lot of people knew for a long time? And how do you feel about the people who separate R. Kelly the man from R. Kelly the artist? Like, where I mean, do you I don't, fall on I don't, that?
0: I mean, that I don't know how you can do. I don't know how you can't be triggered listening to R. Kelly. R. Kelly's music is still available. Um, I don't understand how you can listen to an R. Kelly and not feel triggered. I don't understand how you could listen to Kanye and not feel triggered. I don't understand how you could listen to Michael Jackson and not be triggered and not feel like this is jamming up the signal of my mind of being able to enjoy this music. But, I mean, on the way to the studio, I saw somebody wearing Balenciaga and Kanye shoes. So you know who who knows
1: right huh um i mean i i'm an anti r kelly like his music is not allowed in my home i don't listen to it um then someone asked me you know well then do you listen to kelly price or Aaliyah? and i do i listen to both of them but with that. what'd you say
0: what's wrong with that
1: right i mean i but they you know they're like well he created you know a lot of their music and their sound. so if you're anti r kelly then you should be anti uh
0: that's a stretch
1: okay all right. Well, I mean, I that's still listen stretch. to it. I'm not going gonna...
0: They sang the music. I mean, that's a stretch. I don't have right. to... Now, where do you I... fall
1: on, say, Michael Jackson then?
0: I don't listen to Michael Jackson's music anymore. It turns my stomach. I <sighs> saw the documentary, and <clears throat> I cannot take... I cannot treat him in my life, in my mind, the same way that I did before. It, it, I am completely grossed out. And I'm also disappointed in myself because... When he was doing his thing, and I'm not sure that I could have figured it out, but I was a major music journalist at the time. And there were whispers of, there's a serious problem here. And I never took it seriously to say, let me go see. Let me knock on some doors. Let me call some people and see. And I think in general, the music journalist community heard the rumors and never did anything and you know I, I I and I chief among them and Diane Diamond was running around saying this for years and we were like she's a kook and I was like no nope. who is Diane she, Diamond she was was the first person who who I remember on a big scale writing books saying Michael Jackson is doing these things gotcha, and we were like she's crazy and it was like nope she wasn't she called it now i don't know what her sources were early but she she had the story i didn't and i didn't look into the story and i am regretful of that even though i don't know that i could have i think that story is so behind uh you know closed doors that you know y- y- you have to be much bigger to be able to get at it
1: right Um, uh, well hopefully in one of your shows we'll continue to delve deeper in it because i think that you know there's a, a lot in the black community that we collectively just need to have a sit down i mean between you know so many icons that we grew up with and loved genuinely loved bill cosby michael jackson r kelly and they were such fixtures in our community and i mean and now marvin Gaye didn't he marry someone who was 17 yeah listen the list goes james brown i mean like when we think about rape when we think about you know how men abuse women and children i mean there are a lot of people that don't hold up this the test of time okay so we got to take a quick commercial break Obviously, Christine Ture could talk and argue and fuss and fight like Grio siblings all day long. But we'll be right back. Okay, you are listening to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer. I'm here with my Grio sibling, Ture, host of the new podcast, Being Black, the 80s. It is now time for the Black Lightning Round. Are you ready, write This is the round where there are no right or wrong answers. You just say the first thing that comes to your mind and your heart, and that's where we go. Okay? All right. Favorite thing to do in New York City? Play tennis. What's the best way to listen to music? Vinyl records, CD, streaming, tape, a
0: vinyl sounds best.
1: Okay. One catalog has to go. A Tribe Called Quest, Little Wayne, Public Enemy. No.
0: No. The correct answer is
1: no. What yes. are you talking about? One
0: has to go. No, they don't have to go. I have to I have to speak to the manager to see why one of them has to go, because I can't I can't get rid of any of them. Okay, well I'm gonna get rid of public energy. Um, what
1: yeah I saw it. Okay, best That's track by crazy. De La Soul, who I know you say is one of the greatest hip hop groups of all time. I mean, it's between uh
0: Biddy's in the BK Lounge and probably Afro Connections at High Five.
1: Okay. What's one album you couldn't live without?
0: The old De La Soul is
1: dead. Okay. And the last thing, since we've got a new podcast coming up from Dre, Being Black, the 80s, what's one thing our viewers would be surprised to know about you? Um... Do <laughs> he doesn't I, like to argue, really, he
0: doesn't. I, I, I don't, I, you know, it's funny, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what y'all don't know about me, right? Like, I'm not, I mean, like, if you only interact with me as far as my media... You may not know that, you know, that I play tennis all the time and that, uh, you know, I, I think about that all the time. And that's a big part of my life. Like you may not know that may come out of left field for you. But like, you know, I this the the, the tennis situation community I grew up in was super black. Right. And it's one of the blackest tennis clubs in the country. Right. And and it was this extraordinary situation. If I made a movie about it, you wouldn't believe it. Right. But it was it was it was an amazing place to grow up. And so it wasn't just about the game. It was about the the culture was there. Right. And and um, so I, lo- I loved that place.
1: All right. I want to thank you for coming on The Blackest Questions. And, you know, I adore you. I really you know, I know we fuss and fight uh, on on tape and off. But I, I do want to just, you know, for our listeners. So it's on record in perpetuity. I so appreciate your writing and the way you think about black people and not just black music, but black culture. You know, you really, I don't always agree with you, but that's, that's the beauty of your writing. I really, it makes me think, it makes me think about what my opinions are. And I really appreciate the fact that you've been doing this for a minute. Um, And you can tell that you really love black people. And it just, it introduces me to, to new music that I may have missed But I really um, I'm excited for your new podcast, Being Black, the 80s and having a deeper dive. I
0: I do love black culture Mm -hmm. immensely. And that is at the root of so much of the work.
1: Yeah, I think that's honestly, I think it's the root of all of your work. Everything you touch has like a true love of black people. So I want to thank you for joining us on the Blackest Questions today and know that you can come back anytime, even though you drive me crazy. I got four right. You got the, other it. The, the other question was
0: crazy. The other question was
1: insane. So I want to thank you for listening to The Blackest Questions. This show is produced by Sasha Armstrong and Jeffrey Trudeau. And Regina Griffin is our director of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can find more from the Grio Black Podcast Network on the Grio app, the website, and YouTube.
0: The 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley, De La Soul, and Public Enemy.
1: I'm a black man, and I can never be a veteran.
0: Being Black the 80s is a podcast docu-series hosted by me, Torre, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade. A decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets, but lost their humanity. You couldn't be like no soft, smiling, happy-go-lucky drug deal. You had to suppress that. (laughs)